Hey, 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 it's Mark here. If you enjoyed the Tim Finn interview, I've got a treat for you because we have got a lot of bonus content that was taken out of that first interview. So sit back, relax, and enjoy more Tim Finn goodness as we have a Tim Finn interview bonus content rewind selector. All right, stop. Whatever you're doing, TJ's back, the airwaves were chewing, rocking. A G.I. Joe podcast interview special, questions will be asked. Will it ever stop, yo? I don't think so, not as long as someone's publishing Joe. Artists, writers, G.I. Joe fanboys, let's get things started and hope we don't annoy our guest in the studio right now. They've come in for a chat discussing when, where and how. Probing, we're going in deep. Anything left, we might as well be asleep. Questioning them about the G.I. Joe history. Unwrapping answers like a whodunit mystery. T.J. Interview. T.J. Interview. So this podcast is a little bit different. We had a good chat with Tim Finn and I cut down the show to focus a little bit on his uh, Real American Book Project. But in the course of that chat, we talked about all sorts of things, which has been cut and assembled into this bonus content episode. So here we go. We talk about the early days of G.I. Joe, why it was so popular and why endured a parallel world where G.I. Joe wasn't a success, how comics was the bottom rung of the ladder of art jobs, Transformers versus G.I. Joe from Tom Scioli, the logistics of the G.I. Joe world. We talked about the fan art month that is Cobremva. We talked about the Saw Viper and also the size of Alsatians. So sit back, relax and enjoy some gold standard G.I. Joe waffle. So to reintroduce him, Tim Finn is currently writing the definitive history of the real American hero incarnation of G.I. Joe and documenting his efforts at a realamericanbook.com. Tim teaches animation, animation history and drawing at Leslie Art and Design. Tim also owns Hub Comics in Somerville, Massachusetts. And to start us out on this little chat, I began by asking Tim about the fact that he described himself as more of a comic and animation guy. But looking at his blog, it is clear that he really knows his stuff about the toys as well. Yeah, I've been trying to remember how I was first exposed to G.I. Joe. And I know what toy my brother, who's three years older, got first. But I can't oh, yeah. actually remember. It was the Sky Striker. Mm-hmm. I can't remember if we saw the first five-part miniseries when it was on, if we saw the rerun a few months later, if we were seeing the ads, but we saw the 1984 miniseries. I've, I actually can't pinpoint precisely when we started buying the toys, but I, I'm, I'm within three or four months of it. Sure. And I guess it was a confluence of all, you know, all three being right there front and front and center with you know the the comic being the most popular your highest selling uh selling comic on on the racks the tv show being in you know regular syndication and and sort of being quite just so incredibly popular and also the the toy line being one of the most popular uh of the time as, as well it's sort of sort of everything coming together in in one uh, great successful property at, at that particular point in time in the in the mid 80s Yeah, I think in terms of marketing and product rollouts, we live in this world now where this is expected and it's normal and it's often done well with toy 
story, book, TV, movie, internet, like phone, game, brands. And what Hasbro and its advertising agency, Griffin Bacall, and its animation studio, Sunbow Productions, uh, were able to pull off in planning in 81 and 82, and then actually getting to market for 83 is uh, not just impressive because it was done well and all the product was superior, right? Excellent toys and toy making, excellent mm-hmm. animation and story, uh, excellent comic book you know, story and art. But this hadn't been done before like this. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. you know, when He-Man shows up in, in 83, there is a toy and there is a show and there is a comic book, but the comic book uh, is, you know, a, a three-issue miniseries, and then the comics that come with the toys um, don't match the story continuity of the show. And I know that with GI Joe, the the continuities don't match, but the the scale of this and the planning is remarkable. And this comes from Hasbro specifically contracting with Marvel not just to make a comic book but to make a backstory. And it's important to remember, like the, the story is so embedded with, with fans and even pop culture. Like you can say Snake Eyes to someone who's like not a G.I. Joe fan. And maybe they saw one of the two live action movies or they certainly saw the trailers, right? You can mm-hmm. say Snake Eyes and they'll say, oh yeah, he's that like silent ninja guy and he's all in black. And they might know he has an Uzi and a wolf mm-hmm. um, in the way that someone who's not an X-Men fan can just talk about Wolverine for 30 seconds. But if you think of just the G.I. Joe toys, which is what sort of the, the primary product was in 83, the only story that's there is on the back of the packaging. And, mm-hmm. you know, of course, that's written by someone at Marvel Comics. And that immediately fleshes out these characters. And that hadn't been done before. You know, action figures before that don't have these you know, trading cards on the back that you yeah. are encouraged to keep. Yeah, there's this, this parallel universe where where in those early meetings they didn't get Marvel involved and they didn't, bre- you know, they didn't have the dossiers on the back and the character names and they were just called Commando or, uh, you know, Infantryman or, or whatever and they didn't invent uh, an enemy being Cobra. You can't imagine that that line lasting nearly as long <laughs> as uh, being nearly as successful as, as, it, as it was with the, all of the, those... Uh, other elements coming together to make the the property you know so much more interesting in terms of the storytelling and and bringing the characters to life i I like this idea of a parallel universe and i actually do think about it regularly Um, (laughs) and there's more than one right so the gi joe comic book was it had the right tone it was well written it was well drawn and it was it was consistently well written and well drawn and If you look at Marvel Comics and DC Comics, you can find other series that these two publishers were creating in the 80s that were licensed from toy lines Mm -hmm. that did not check off those boxes. And so you can, if you squint and turn your head sideways, you can see what G.I. Joe could have been with lesser Mm -hmm. talents, right? Um, In my history of animation class two semesters ago, somehow we had an extra week in the semester and uh students had turned in their final essays and we'd gotten through the syllabus and we'd sort of checked off the boxes of the the timeline of the 20th century and with this extra week 
partly to be uh, to be selfish because I, I like to share GI Joe with impressionable nineteen year olds, and partly because you can make a uh, an academic argument for for GI Joe and nineteen eighties cartoons. I did an informal case study on our final class where where we watched an episode of uh, Chuck Norris Karate Commandos, an episode of Mask, and an episode of GI Joe, and in between each one. Oh, by the way, every seven minutes when it went to commercial, uh, I paused it and played a commercial from the 80s, <laughs> uh, like, a, like a DJ, a sort of Excellent. live mixing. And after each one, informally, I talked and we talked about what was good and what was bad. And it's easy for a G.I. Joe fan to say, like, no, no, these toys are the best or these toys are better. Or, no, this cartoon is really good. It's another thing to say... This show is better than this other show, and here is why. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's so much more depth and characterization to to it, and like you say, with the with the other licensed properties, particularly in the in the hands of Marvel and and DC, they just they seemed like pale imitations of the source material, really. Sort of often filtered by through through the lens of creators who you know it was very much a paycheck gig and maybe didn't really understand the the property whereas i guess with gi joe the guy who knew the under, you know knew the the property best was the the actual guy behind the the steering wheel of of the of the comic and yeah lucked out with some enormously talented uh, artists to you know round out the team as well so it's uh larry hama you know the writer of the gi joe comic often and rightly gets that credit for being a smart, talented guy who had a good take on this material for the comic book. But it's also worth remembering that Hasbro was a willing and positive partner, mm. right? So, you know, marketing at Hasbro in 83, 84, 85, as it's starting, like they obviously wanted this to be a success, but they were giving Marvel Comics proper freedom, the licensing fee, right? The money that Marvel had to pay Hasbro to be able to make this comic book was uh, nominal and that mm-hmm. doesn't happen okay. anymore mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. so you know if you've looked at licensed comics like I'm going to pick on Dark Horse Comics uh, for a moment um, mm-hmm. you know when Dark Horse Comics was making Star Wars comics between 92 and uh, you know 2005 um, oftentimes the covers were amazing and every so often the artwork inside was amazing but mm-hmm. Dark Horse had spent so much money on the license that often they had to hire the less expensive artists. And a lot of those were beginning artists. Mm. And the, the flip side of that is that if you have a talented veteran, they probably don't want to deal with the grief of all of these different characters and vehicles and making sure that every page gets approved by not just their editor at the publisher, but also the company that controls the property. That's a real pain. And, and yeah. then if it has um, actor likenesses, that's one additional layer where um, oftentimes not the actor themselves, but their agent or someone representing them will look at the artwork and say yes or no. Yeah, and, or, or indeed from from the start not being allowed to use their likenesses and, and then the, the whole look of the book just immediately being a little bit off because you've got these characters who can't look like uh, the character from the, the from the movie for example right I, i've heard larry as well talking about the fact that you know with these licenses licensing uh, comics that they often look down upon by by his fellow creators in, and in part because they were often uh, given a, a lower rate because they effectively would take you know taking off the licensing licensing fee off 
prior to the then the the rates that they paid the creators being dished out so uh seems somewhat unfair but uh seemed to be the way that it went yeah it's funny that uh that comic books which you know for decades was already the bottom rung of the ladder of art jobs you know if you were a comic strip artist for newspapers that was a legitimate job you could be famous you could make a lot of money off the strip and off of licensing and you had an ownership stake uh, in this property you know if you were uh, a, a, a political cartoonist for a newspaper if you were an illustrator for uh, magazine and book covers and and at the bottom of this ladder, you know, and then if you're a fine artist and your work is in museums or galleries, right, or you're doing presidential portraits, mm -hmm. if you were a comic book artist in much of the 20th century, that was an embarrassing job. And, you know, at a holiday party, if someone mm -hmm. said, oh, what do you do in the 40s and 50s and 60s, you wouldn't say, oh, I'm a, I'm a comic book artist. You'd sort mm -hmm. of change the subject or fib. And it's funny that in this lowest rung of art jobs, there could be additional sub-rungs sub <laughs> where it's like, oh, well, I'm drawing X-Men, I'm drawing Batman. It's like, well, I, I'm drawing Transformers. I'm drawing, yeah, Atari <laughs> Force. Um, I'm drawing, um, you know, I'm drawing Mask. I'm drawing mm -hmm. Cops. And the, the funny sort of turnaround on that is that, one, with these books, some of them, people know them better now 20, 30 years later, because they had these toy companies behind them and this nostalgia factor. And then specifically in the case of G.I. Joe, right? It, I mean, it can't be overstated that the writing on the comic book was, was great. And that's mm -hmm. because the writer was and is a very smart uh, person. And it's easy to just assume well, the G.I. Joe comic book is going to be like jingoism and dumb and subliterate and you know, people might conflate it with the TV show. It's like, well, they're shooting lasers and they never get hit and they can seemingly dodge the bullets and, you know, it's all these dumb take over the world uh, mm -hmm. stories. And, you know, the show has its grounding and has its smarts. The show and the comic book are, of course, very different, but... Yes, Larry Hama is is a smart guy, and I don't I don't want to just say this in the past tense because uh, you know the sales figures on the Marvel run for 155 issues were higher than they are now on the IDW mm -hmm. run. But uh, listeners, if you're not reading IDW's continued Jejo or Real American Hero, it's great, and you're missing out. <laughs> well, yeah, we are talking about it uh, on a weekly basis on the on the show at the moment because we're doing. Uh, a read through of the of the book we started at issue one and over a hundred uh, episodes later we are up to uh issue 260 as i speak so that's uh on the cobra's venom we are so um almost a, a, a present day and i know yeah the, the the new book the idw era book um it's got it's you know some people who are who are very uh, vocal about its positives and and some people who just really don't don't appreciate it for if i guess what it what it is and it's got its very strong moments and and then uh, and then probably some some elements that maybe are a little bit more frust frustrating i know that uh, some a lot a lot of uh, the the people that we we talk with get a little bit frustrated by for example the uh, the amount of the time that the blue ninja plot 
takes up in the in the in this most recent uh, run. But yeah, uh, I I always find something positive uh, about it uh, every time uh, every time we're looking at an issue and and yeah, particularly some of uh, Larry's uh, dialogue in, in in you know the uh, the over the topness of of a character like uh, Doctor Venom is is always uh, very enjoyable to read. It's easy to compare current GI Joe comics with the original run because that's the most obvious and direct comparison. And I I will agree, you can't go home again. It's not the same, right? We're all older. Mm -hmm. Larry's a different writer, different publisher. The economics are different. Artists have moved on. The paper is different. How the book is Mm -hmm. colored and lettered is different, right? It's printed in a different country. Everything about it is different. Yeah, the adverts. <laughs> uh, yes, the ad- advertisements all come in the, in the back because that's yeah. how IDW publishes. Um, so there's a different pace to the book, right? Not that a lot of ads in Marvel books in the 80s were necessarily sort of placed for maximum effect, but mm-hmm. occasionally, you know, turn a page and you'd have to turn another page to find out what happened. Yeah, um, but also as a, as a reading it in, in, you know, in a more nostalgic bent, you you sort of look at those adverts from the 80s and and you know that is quite a distraction it's sort of like whoa that's that's interesting and it's sort of you know you have to, to read the story sort of uh you you kind of have to you know, skip past the adverts and come back to them because they they do grab your grab your attention and that some of those nostalgic twangs whereas yeah with the idw era it's all at the back and, and generally it's for other idw books that, that for the most part I, i'm not reading so you can pretty much ignore most of the advertising in in the book so it's that that's what brings a different dynamic to it as a as a reader reading the new stuff versus nostalgically reading some of the old issues. There is a parallel, though, because this new series, right? Every so often, I sort of scratch my head and I can't believe that the new series has now been running for 10 years. And mm, that's incredible. And even even saying that, I think to myself, wait, am I am I getting this wrong? And then I'll Google it. Like, oh, no, 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 no. The free comic book day 155 and a half was 2010. And Going back a hundred issues, there is now a little bit of nostalgia for that because <laughs> what IDW was publishing in 2010 was different than what they're publishing publishing now. And IDW is a very different company. Mm. I think the yeah, I think another helpful comparison, not just current GI Joe to old GI Joe, is other brands that have come back with the same, let's say, cast for lack of a better word, right? So I think about the mm-hmm. X Files. Right, which had an ending, season nine. What was that? Two thousand and two or three. And then more than ten years later, right? There's a season ten and a season eleven, and it's it's the same, but it's very much not the same. You know, we have all these things where the original uh, writer, you know, it's it's comics or it's it's novels or it's TV shows or movies. You know, uh, you know, Bill and Ted face the music, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm, it's like. Yeah. It's the same director and writers. Mm. And, you know, the, uh, the, the manager uh, of my comic book store, whose name is Jesse, and he's great, my manager at my shop, um, he, you know, he loves X-Men, he loves Batman, and he's not so interested in sort of remakes or later sequels, right? So he's, he's mm-hmm. a big fan of the Tim Burton Batman movies, and he accepts the Joel Schumacher Batman <laughs> movies. He has not seen the Christopher Nolan trilogy, wow. and he's really not interested in the newer uh, DC Universe Warner Brothers films. And on the one hand, I think that's crazy, because there's still like a fifth grade boy in me that even if they're bad, like can't mm-hmm. believe that there's 
you know, like a another Batman movie, but this time he's going to be old, or this time he's going to be young, um, or like a Justice League, an, an utterly compromised Justice League movie, right? It's like, mm. oh, I know this is going to be bad, and I don't want to see it, but I have to see this. On the other hand, on the other hand, I very much respect his uh, willingness to say, like, you know what, these three new Star Wars movies, they're not for me, even though I'm a Star Wars kid. Mm. You know, but I, I can't I can't accept that uh, point of view for myself because, you know, in the case of G.I. Joe, it's like I'm paying attention to the classified action figures and the mm-hmm. retro line. And uh, I'm very much paying attention to the comic book. And if, if there's any kind of announcement, uh, you know, for TV or, or movie stuff, I will gobble that up because as much as I like the toys, I'm most interested in G.I. Joe as as a vehicle for story. Mm-hmm. Like, what happens, who does what, and and how is it that I care about these characters? And the icing on the cake is all these wonderful costumes and color schemes and uh, character uh, specialties. Am, am I remembering right that, that I read that, uh, that you had a conversation with somebody about the latest Transformers film that was coming out, and you, you, know, you were talking about that you're going to go and see it because... You thought you wouldn't enjoy it, but you know you've got this dedication to to the franchise. It's you know and and uh, all of the you know these these films. You feel like you have to go and see them, but you somehow mentally released yourself and said, actually, you know what? I'm not going to enjoy this. I'm not looking forward to it. I don't have to. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'd forgotten about that. So uh, you know, the first Michael Bay Transformers movie was was good and exciting and then the more i thought about it i realized how flawed it was and the second one was an upsetting mess and then (laughs) the third one it's like all right well it's in 3d so michael bay has to pull the camera back and slow down a little bit otherwise everyone's Mm -hmm. gonna get a headache and it was (laughs) it was just so upsetting uh and so uh, a friend of mine uh, a gentleman named gary goggles oh that's right uh, Mm -hmm. uh gary said no, he'd seen the fourth one. He said, no, don't see it. You're just going to get upset. And as you said, it, it released me from this. And so uh, sort of my joke is like, all right, Michael Bay and Paramount and DreamWorks, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me four <laughs> times, shame on me. Recently, I watched the trailer for the fifth one. And, and it, was, it was all of these conflicting feelings all over again. Mm. Like, well, this scene seems to be going in the right direction. Nope, nope. Nope. Yeah, I think I was in the same boat that I, I gave up after the second or third. I think it was the third that I, that I stopped it. Uh, I, I watched, I think it was number two in the cinema and I fell asleep. Uh, it's the only time that I've fallen asleep in the cinema watching a film. It's uh, it was just like, sort of close my eyes. Oh, they're still fighting in a blurred mess of uh, non-distinguishable metal. Um, yeah. Some of, some of this is being able to not see the next one is possible because there is also a show running on TV at the time or, mm-hmm. you know, an internet uh, animated series. Whereas with something like GI Joe, you know, I, I see a few comments online where someone sees information about the upcoming snake eyes film. And they say, I don't like these changes. This isn't GI Joe to me. I'm not going to see it. You know, they're making a mistake. This uh, like boycott this film. And, it's slim pickings, you know, with sure, G.I. Joe. Sure. So uh, everyone can make their own decision and, and skip stuff that doesn't speak to them by all means. But one, I think that 
G.I. Joe is flexible enough that there can be mm-hmm. this other take on it where Snake Eyes is not a blonde white guy. Mm-hmm. And as much as I would love the, sort of the actor who plays him and sort of how he looks under the mask in several G.I. Joe movies to not be important, mm-hmm. right? And, and we actually kind of got that in the in the first two live action movies, right? Like he doesn't talk. Uh, he doesn't even really pantomime. He doesn't like point or wag his finger. He just looks and then goes and does his awesome thing. Mm-hmm. And one of the points I was making uh, in my blog recently when I wrote about the first Rob Liefeld Snake Eyes issue, this yeah. current excellent, series. Excellent writing, by the way. <laughs> so it's surgical takedown. <laughs> Um, I I have to say writing about issue one was really fun. And then I read issue two and there was no fun. Right. And someone said, you're going to write about issue two. And I said, I thought, no, I've said all, all I have to say about Mm -hmm. this. And issue two Mm -hmm. didn't, didn't add anything. And then I read issue three and I I felt again, the same way. Um, Mm. like it's just sort of a, it's like a candy bar with, with no caramel or nuts in the middle. It's like I take a bite (laughs) and the chocolate sort of shatters because it was, it was a, a, a chocolate force field around nothing. But the point I was trying to make in that blog post is that G.I. Joe is flexible enough that it can have all of these versions. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, if we think of the differences between the 80s comic and the 80s uh, cartoon, those differences from one to the other, they're not that big. Uh, when you get to something like Tom Scioli's Transformers versus G.I. Joe 12 issue miniseries like that comic is nuts and sure is. like the question you can ask yourself is who is this for right like Star Wars uh, episode uh, 7 right like Force Awakens who is this for mm-hmm. like, well this is if I had kids this is my kid for my kids this is also very much for me and it uh, it actually can't decide who's it, who mm-hmm. it is for and it probably should be more for me or more for them Mm-hmm. And it's I think its weakness is that it tries to do both. But Transformers versus G.I. Joe, okay, well, it's it's not actually for Transformers fans because it's so weird. It's certainly not for G.I. <laughs> Joe fans because it's too weird for G.I. Joe fans. And I don't mean that as an insult. I, I, I mean that as a compliment. Um, it's, it's for this like minority of a minority. It's for like indie comics fans and like mm-hmm. Tom Scioli fans who have read his like exciting Jack Kirby cosmic pastiches. It's like, okay, mm-hmm, if you read, mm-hmm. uh, if you read Godland, if you read uh, American Barbarian, you're going to like this. And I think it's actually better. Like my cousin who doesn't really read comics, her kid reads comics. She just reads a lot of novels and uh, she knows about G.I. Joe cause she grew up in the eighties, but she, you know, she can sing the theme song, but doesn't know about it. I think this comic is sort of for her because all you need to know is that there are these good guys who are in like green and these bad guys who have this snake motif. And mm-hmm. you can guess that like James Bond villains, they're going to invent giant machines or lasers to, to, to do evil. And then you have these alien robots with their own mythology, right? So my cousin brings no expectations or baggage to that mm-hmm. series. Whereas I think you and I are reading it and we're looking for what it's going to get wrong. <laughs> and when it gets something right on its own, it like creates something new. We, we have a hard time appreciating that hmm. because we just see it as getting it wrong. It's like, no, 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 the bareness can't be, 
in charge. It's like that, that hasn't been done before. Like there's no expectation that she would do that. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I mean, we're quite big fans of the book actually on, uh, on, on this, on this show. And I chief particularly is, and, and I think it kind of gets a pass from us to a degree in terms of, well, more than just gets a pass. Uh, it, it's kind of, because from the outsets, it, it sort of, you know, makes its stake really that, okay, guys, this is going to be completely nuts. We're going to turn up everything to 11 and just throw everything against the wall and prepare for some real, you know, weirdness rather than it necessarily trying to be uh, truly faithful to something that we recognise. It's like that uncanny valley where you're getting something that's close but but something about it is a bit off. Whereas uh, with uh, yeah, the Scioli book, it's it's just so amplified that it's it's can only be really its own thing, and and you don't necessarily have to worry about its uh, its faithfulness to any other kind of uh, characterization of the, of the, or interpretation that you've seen of these characters anywhere else. I should say I love that series, and I'm glad that you and some of your listeners. Uh, appreciate it too yeah if you're looking for the military realism though <laughs> it's probably not the book for you yeah and and you know like i have to i have to remind myself that with with larry hama's gi joe the military realism it's not there as often as i think it is the book is is grounded which is different than realistic yeah and, i get that you know, mm -hmm. and grounded it's it's convincing it has internal rules and it follows them. You know, like, like how often uh, is there a moment where someone's like running up to a wall or a tank and then someone says, we can't traverse our turret down to shoot <laughs> these people. I, I don't, I'm, how often? What I mean is that comes up a couple times in the series. And I always think this would never happen in a Punisher comic book, an X-Men comic book. Uh, and this actually probably wouldn't happen in a lot of sort of authentic war comics. And I think some of the difference is that Larry Hama was in the military. Some of it is that he's doing his research and he's widely read. And, uh, you know, like I really love the war comics of Garth Ennis. Mm -hmm. And he, he does them for a variety of publishers. He, you know, he even does them for Marvel, even though Marvel's not interested in publishing war <laughs> comics. But if if it can end yeah, up being a Punisher, yeah. Punisher story or a Nick Fury story or like a copyright renewal on War is Hell. And his stuff is very much about character. But he also, from my um, from my point of view, gets the action right. Oh, yeah. Uh, Larry, Larry said something interesting to me when I interviewed him for my book years ago. And I think we were talking about just sort of generally like Avengers and Daredevil and Batman, like action comics. And he said, a lot of guys who write comics haven't actually ever been in a fight. Mm -hmm. And I think he meant a fist fight, like mm -hmm. we're getting mugged. And and he said, and you can tell, I, I think about the things that I get from a Larry Hama G.I. Joe story, which I don't get from other comics. And one of them is a, a point that I made in uh, this uh, blog post a couple days ago, I guess it's more than a week ago, this Mark Bright page from issue 35, where it's uh, clutch and rock and roll and someone else in a, in a like 1950s car driving on the highway. Mm -hmm. And this is not a scene you would ever see in an X-Men comic. And, you know, the Punisher has a van, but 
there is no focus. And I know a, a solo book is different than a team book, uh, but there's no focus on actually loading up a van or getting from point A to point B. And it's exciting in superhero comics that we can have this shorthand where they can go from like the moon to, you know, New York where the X-Men mansion mm -hmm. is or Genosha or Madripoor because uh, they can teleport or they have this fancy jet. And I sort of even forget now how it's explained in X-Men comics. It's like, uh, Xavier's rich. I, I don't mean right now. In the I don't mean in the, in the Jonathan Hickman run. This is yeah, explained. Yeah, yeah. I mean in the 40 years before this. Mm -hmm. uh, like Angel is rich or Xavier's rich or Maury Mertaggart's rich or something. Whatever. Yeah. They have a mansion. They have a jet. And every time the mansion of the jet blows up, they have another one. And I mean, you could do the same thing with GI Joe. It's like they seem to have an unlimited supply of these uh, jets and tanks and this unrealistically deep, expensive headquarters. Um, but it's like, well, it's you know military funding, so I can I can I can buy that shorthand. But like, what I like so much about uh, jumping ahead a few podcast episodes for your review of the IDW series. I think it's issue 271 or two or three. Um, but in Snake Hunt, uh, there's this series of scenes where the Joes are going from point A to point B. They're going mm -hmm. from the pit to somewhere, uh, in case you haven't read it all. It's not a spoiler, <laughs> but I, just, I, won't, I won't identify it. And, <laughs> Springfield. You know, uh, Springfield. Um, <laughs> Since we don't know where Springfield is, it's kind of actually kind of not a spoiler because yeah. I guess they're going to all 50 states, um, all 49 states that have a Springfield. And uh, Larry spends some time on, it's like, okay, well, these Joes have to get on that vehicle. These Joes mm -hmm. have to get yeah, on yeah, this yeah. other vehicle. These guys are going to fly. These guys are going to drive. And then they end up taking something that's not exciting, like a G.I. Joe vehicle for a very small story reason. And that th the scene is not exciting. It's just a bit of business. Um, and it is both grounded and realistic, you know, like, like President Dwight D. Eisenhower got funding for the American national highway system because as a general in the armed forces, he had, if I've got my fact right, he had conducted an exercise where he had to move a large American military force from, I forget, like Florida to Iowa, from Florida to California. Um, and it was difficult and time consuming because we didn't have any kind of unified road system. And it was a lot of like narrow roads and not well paved roads. And he was a fiscal conservative, but he got funding for this nationalized federal highway system. And, you know, they're all paved, they're all wide. And every so often there's a stretch that's straight and long enough that if you had to an emergency, you could land a plane on it. And so, I don't know that Larry Hama is thinking of that specifically when he spends a couple pages. I mean, it's also a way to just rattle off a bunch of names and vehicles because yeah. that's part of the remit of the story. Yeah, yeah. Every character is going to show up. Um, and as much as I want the ball to go into battle, it's, it's actually found it kind of funny. It's like, all right, everyone get every vehicle up on this gantry elevator in the pit. It's like, okay, well, here's why this isn't going to work. All right, we're going to plan B. This is how we're going to get to Springfield. So there's there's my sort of jumping ahead to a future episode of your podcast as a little like message in a bottle, yeah. Uh, comment yeah, yeah. on no, and, and it's it sort of rings with uh, he's he's done similar things on a, on a couple of occasions that I think it's um, 
when uh, Cobra is invading, is it Trucial Abysmia, where it's got all of the oil in, in that, uh, is it around about 110-ish? Um, and, uh, and yeah, just after the, the Joes have been shot and, and they've got the okay to, to sort of round up, a, you know, the entire Joe, Joe force and get them across there. And, uh, they yeah, again, talking about the logistics of how are we going to do that? We've only got one, uh, we've only got one transport plane and uh, and explaining how actually you know they've got the go ahead from government to to, uh, to use this uh, wider uh, transport uh, logistics force to get the entire team uh, team across and and then yeah sort of back in the Springfield invasion as well again they sort of had uh, in in issue fifty or so that they had uh, uh, had these sub teams and, and they're all sounding off in the, their various uh, transports doing a name name check ahead of uh, ahead of the operation and uh, yeah sort of. Um, it's a, it's you know, all it is is it's necessarily a, a, a head count in some of those, uh, some of those pages. But um, as a, yeah, as a fan, it's quite enjoyable just seeing seeing those roll calls and and them all uh, prepped and, and and ready to ready to go ahead of the actual battle itself. What's what's interesting with GI Joe is, besides the logistics, like in the in the TV show, uh, what I call the green guys, the generic mm-hmm. backup soldiers, green shirts. Um, Yes, thank you. Green shirts. Uh, I never liked them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think as a viewer, it stuck out to me that none of them spoke, none of them were identified. The Joes, there wasn't even a scene where one Joe who's got a code name and a specific costume says, like, hey, green shirts, load up, <laughs> or toss me that backpack, right? And then mm-hmm. the guy would nod. And, you know, part of it is a budget, because if anyone talks, that's an actor that you have to pay. But to me, and I think my brother actually, I think my brother pointed this out because he was reading military books and he was building model airplanes and, and later taking martial arts. And he said to me, G.I. Joe is basically Delta Force. They wouldn't have those guys. Like G.I. Joe mm, isn't mm. the army. It's, it's five or 30 or 100 guys and women, excuse me, who uh, go in occasionally on special missions and I think this was his idea or I took that idea from him and ran with it. I feel like each of the G.I. Joe vehicles, uh, there's probably only one or two. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. um, and I just rewatched uh, Cold Shoulder, one of the uh, Deke episodes from what everyone calls uh, Series 2, Season 1, but I actually call Season 3. Sergeant Slaughter's in it, Stretcher. Five Joes go on a rescue mission. Cobra Commander has a cold. He's sneezing. It's really embarrassing. And all the Joes are driving the avalanche. There are like four avalanches in this scene. And there are four Joes. It's not even two Joes, one in the cockpit and one in that like submarine pod. And I think it's because sort of quietly the directive from Hasbro to the animation people is put this stuff on screen. We want to sell toys. Mm -hmm. And... I don't know that they thought kids were going to buy two or three of every vehicle, but they don't want to dissuade them from that. Mm -hmm. And certainly if you had more than one or if you had a friend or a sibling and you had an extra vehicle, you know, my brother and I each had a stinger and that made Cobra that much more impressive because Cobra really would have 30 or 500 of those. It was pointed out to me the the other day by somebody that in the package art for the Rattler, very quietly in the in the background is a is a second rattler, which I guess shows a different angle to the plane, but also sort of plants the seed that yeah, there could be more than one of these out there, and you know more than one in your own personal collection. 
Absolutely. I don't know how big Cobra is in the comic book and the cartoon. I don't know how big sort of quote realistically Cobra should be in these two stories, but it is bigger than G.I. Joe. It is global. And one of the things that I love the idea of that comes from the toys that you'd have all these specialized vipers and it was a bummer on the tv show when crimson guardsmen were just in the in a battle the same way that mm -hmm. cobra soldiers and officers or vipers were yeah it's like no no that's not what they would do um and the file card says so and also just looking at their costume like these guys are fancy they're, they're not going to be out in the mud like running over broken rocks and broken glass so that moment in the movie the animated movie when serpentor steals himself on his throne and those two crimson guardsmen face the camera and they cross their bayonets and they're sort of the final guard mm -hmm, that little mm -hmm. moment is one so awesome and two undoes some of this uh damage is too strong a word but sort of this inaccuracy of what the show had been doing for two years where the crimson guardsmen are just interchangeable with the, any you know. other troop yeah yeah but I, I love this idea that i don't know how many techno vipers there are worldwide oh and and larry hama has done this a little bit in the comic where there'll be a squad it's like one frag viper one heat mm -hmm. viper one night viper one techno viper right and i think that's actually what you'd have you'd have a bunch of like five or ten or thirty regular vipers um, sure. or thirty uh this 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 happens a little bit in um when Cobra invades Millville during the Mark Bright run around issue 100 and 101, where it's like alley vipers, frag vipers, and heat vipers are mm -hmm. taking the city. And like, you know, alley vipers are like evil SWAT. So mm -hmm. they would be they would be frontline and they have their shields mm -hmm. to like bump into people and push them out of the way. But like, you know, I'd love a story in, in the comics or in the cartoon where it's like, okay, what is a techno viper doing? Because he's not out in the battlefield in great numbers. There's going to be one Techno Viper in each squad or platoon. Mm -hmm. But it's like, where are, where are the 50 Techno Vipers back at base who are like fixing things? And then one of them gets called up. You know, like I'd love a story with just Rock Vipers going up and down a mountain. And maybe there's like uh, one Heat Viper with them. And he's complaining because he's not quite meant for this. But when they get to the top of the mountain, he's going to fire off one of his rockets. Uh, meanwhile, on the other side of the mountain is you know hit and run and alpine and it's fun imagining it's fun imagining this story. Um, Cobrember, if if you if you follow artists on the internet, there's this meme or phenomenon called Inktober, mm -hmm. which is the word ink, uh, I N K, and October. Uh, so yep. every day in October, people who like to draw draw something in ink. These are black and white drawings, and each day of October, there's a word that represents a theme. And it's just a fun exercise to get you drawing and sharing. And it's all sort of spooky. And I don't know who, but someone very smart a couple years ago took that and ran with it. And so there's this phenomenon in November called Jovember, yeah. where every day in November, if you like to draw, you draw a G.I. Joe character. And I have wanted to take part, but November's during the fall semester and uh, it's a commitment, you know, it's an mm -hmm, hour or mm -hmm. two every day. And uh, I would I would be too embarrassed that I would do half of it and then get too busy and I would I would just fail Jovember. But I, I have a bunch of uh, small creative projects that have been percolating, sort of coming to the surface this month, and I thought uh, I'll 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 go whole hog. 
So we're, we're doing some promotion for my store and I've been delinquent on my blog and I wanted to come back to it. And I thought, oh, what if I did, I don't want to draw Joe's, I'm gonna draw Cobra because the color schemes are so much more exciting. And, uh, and it's fun to draw the less well-known Cobra guys. Like it's, it's not easy to draw Storm Shadow and De uh, Destro and the Baroness, but it's definitely something that a lot of people do. Mm -hmm. But you know, who draws the Secto Viper? So, um, and you know, could I get some eyeballs on my slice of the internet if I not just drew like sexy Baroness or like <laughs> badass Storm Shadow, um, but like the Secto Viper? You know, maybe someone who's not a GI Joe fan is just gonna like that because it's this weird like 1950s sci-fi underwater guy. Uh, so I took the word December and the word Cobra and I mushed them together. And the idea is every day in December, I'm drawing and posting uh, a drawing of someone in Cobra. And I'm mostly focusing on on Vipers. And it's really fun. It's also hard. And it has caught on and a few other people are doing it. And uh, so I encourage your listeners to, uh, on Instagram and Facebook, uh, search for the hashtag Cobrember, and you know, <laughs> follow my Instagram, which is uh, a real American book. Um, okay, so that's where they'll find it on the uh, real American book uh, Instagram. Yeah, and then in, in January, I'll, I'll put them over on my blog, which, as you said, is therealamericanbook.com. I feel like I might be slightly confusing things because for the moment, my Instagram is fan art, whereas my blog is very much about sort of essays on G.I. Joe or art and artifacts that won't fit in my book as a way to tease the book mm -hmm. um so i, I don't want to i don't want to confuse the two things but after december my instagram will you know will just be what the blog is and speaking of some of the more fringe cobra troops with uh, the crazy colors and, and designs like for example the saw viper you know in its uh, sort of bright it's a pinky purple um green visor and uh, in terms of design sort of like the uh, the thigh high boots whatever it is it's all a bit you know a few elements there that that are quite out there but something about it that can still work in a in a toy form and it's comic book uh, representation as being you know one of the the most fearsome cobras of of all uh not to say it's necessarily my favorite toy but but somehow i think it, it still works i'm still angry at the saw viper I, I look at the toy and i just think of those panels in the comic where he's laughing as he's about to and then kills some joes and uh, none of those characters who died were my favorites but but uh you know, it's like Darth Vader, I feel like I, maybe other people feel differently, but sort of your initial reaction to Darth Vader when you saw that first movie, let's say you're about my age, our age, you know, in late 70s, early 80s, and he's such a cool, scary villain, and he threatens people, and he, you know, he chokes that guy. Um, but so much of that feeling is gone now because he's so familiar, right? We see mm -hmm, him mm -hmm. at Disney World and he's got his own comic where he's sort of the hero and we've seen his backstory and it's tragic. Saw Viper, I look at the toy and I, I don't quite shudder and I don't frown, but I still have a very, very small vis visceral reaction. Like, oh my God, it's that guy. He killed those guys. So I guess, I guess it worked. The, the, the design and the fiction. Like, congratulations, Hasbro <laughs> and Marvel. 
I'm still a little upset yeah. about that. Oh my issue. god, they killed Quick Kick, you bastards! Um, yeah, it's. Uh, I was. I was reading it. Uh, that very issue with my uh, boy, who's uh, nine, and we just got to that point in the in the story, and and it somewhat upset him. He was, uh, I think, not quite prepared for the I guess dramatic change in the in that you know as a I guess plot device would you call it that that it, it you sort of not you're not uh, eased into it it comes somewhat out of uh, out of nowhere as a sudden left turn to to the to the tone of the book yeah i had um when i was actually writing that paragraph in in my book i thought i i think this needs a quote from larry hama so i emailed him sort of just a, you know 15 years later like interview follow up you know what were you what were you what was your decision making and I had this quote in the book, uh, and he says, he says, I don't like to kill characters in books. The, it was a way to take several characters off the board in an, in an overcrowded book, right? And, and my response to that would be, it's like, well, I mean, the book's always been overcrowded, and it seems like the way previously mm-hmm. to remove characters was just to sort of not show them. Not some of them, them. Yeah. Some of them retired or had other jobs. You know, it's like we haven't seen so and so in forty issues. And I, I think so. And and then he he also said he said, but you know, actually, a lot of decisions, very specific decisions for one plot point or another, I don't remember. And that's totally fair because it was many years ago. And you know, he was editing and writing several books and had a family. And you know, his his band was playing several nights a week. You know, it's like. Do you remember why you picked those shoes in in mm-hmm. 1992? Right? It's like because uh, I like them. It's like no, no. Tell me more. Tell me more. <laughs> um, but I think about there's a scene, and I, I forget what issue it is in the current IDW run. Uh, I want to say it was about 20 issues ago, and it's uh, uh, I can't remember. Cobra Commander throws two or three. Uh, I forget if it's like a CEO in the trunk of a car. Oh yeah, uh, that, yeah, 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 yeah. Can you help um, me it's out when he's, and... he's taking over uh, or his broker beach or something like that. And uh, he's just bought it out. And is it, is it that they look, but they, the, or is it the local mafia or the councilman who were trying to sort of, you know, hold him to account. And he just, yeah. Just so, yeah, him thank you. So he, th- he throws in the trunk, closes it, pulls out a pistol and shoots into the trunk and walks away. And it's shocking. And I thought, well, yeah, this is Cobra commander. We we see him lose more often than win, but you know, like he is a terrorist. And every so often, when the book shocks us, that's a good thing. And part of sort of reclaiming that scene where the saw viper kills those Joes. Um, I mean, it, I I could spend a half hour talking about just what how that scene works and what it means to me. But um, I own a page from that issue. And it's the page where the Joes decide to go after him. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's a, there's a scan of one panel of it in my Rob Liefeld uh, snake eyes dead game blog article um, where I'm I'm comparing how a a scene can be uh, told. But uh, I, you know, I bought it because, you know, I like to own GI Joe original artwork. It's Ron Garney's first professional work. Oh, wow. I like his stuff a lot. And he did an interview for Modern Masters, which is not quite a magazine. It's a, like a book series published by Tomorrow's. And a couple paragraphs, because the interview is chronological for his career. And the point is made, like, 
get talk about getting dumped in the deep end, right? Like you're brand new to comics, you have to draw a book that's got this major cast, all these costume designs, um, all these vehicles. It's in the middle of a story. Uh, you know, it was probably behind schedule um, slightly because Mark Bright had just left and they're like about to find a new artist. And it's it's sort of thankless, right? You know, because it's it's like a kid book or a toy book. But I think he did a great job. And the final panel on of that page that I own is uh, is it uh, is it cross country Duke and Falcon? Um, it's it's them with grim determination, like head and shoulders. And I think one of them is cocking his pistol, and it's like we're gonna go get him. Uh huh. Uh huh. And I don't I don't love the inking in that issue either. Garney's penciling was a little loose because he was rushing or mm-hmm. not confident, or the inker I forget who it is. Yeah, it's Fred um, Fred Fredericks, and I think he he sort of he had quite a light touch to a lot of his inks that that i don't know if that's the right the right description really but but sort of gaps left for for not really necessarily the bold confident lines that that we've been used to seeing in in some of the book yeah although didn't fred didn't fred fredericks ink ron wagner on nth man oh i don't know don't know the answer uh to that. i th- i think he did and i th- uh and i'm sorry to everyone if i'm wrong there uh and that you know that might be the difference between ron wagner sort of like with a proper schedule, more confident because he'd now been drawing professionally for a couple of years and comfortable working with Hama, who he had Mm -hmm. just done a Mm -hmm. run on G.I. Joe with. Whatever the case, right? When anything looks rushed or loose in comics, you know, if it's a particular artist who you know draws that way, uh, that's that's probably the answer. And if it's not that, the answer is almost always scheduling. And it's not like the penciler is lazy or the penciler is slow. It's often the writer or the editor got the penciler the script late or got them the script, but not the reference, or they were drawing on time, but then someone said, well, you have to redraw this page and we're not giving you any more deadline, right? But though that page is looser than I'm used to for G.I. Joe, what I like about owning original pages uh, is that oftentimes a a Larry Hama G.I. Joe page just tells a story within five or six panels. Like a couple guys are talking in the first panel they do something or say something and then in the final panel there's a tiny bit of closure right like this page the final panels these three joes saying let's go get him and even though clearly this is not the end of the issue and then they do go get him and and it's off screen or off panel right like when they actually do it what's so amazing is that hama doesn't give us the satisfaction of seeing the joes take revenge on this terrible villain they just have his uh, was it, they have they have the dog tags i forget snake eyes drops down the saw vipers machine gun implying that he'd taken him down off panel and you know like if you like issue 250 uh where um don marino is fighting firefly on the train mm-hmm. in tokyo right like we want this final battle to be her killing him or maiming him and <laughs> Uh, actually, a lot of Larry Hama's stories are about forgiveness or acceptance. Mm, mm, yeah. And you know, in in a in a book like GI Joe, we don't think that that's what's, what's like where they're going to blow up Cobra, right? They're going to blow up the base and like throw Cobra Commander in jail. Sometimes I think about the final line in GI Joe Retaliation, where uh, Dwayne the Rock Johnson as Roadblock like points his pistol up in the air after his little at the award ceremony, right? Like two in the chamber, one for Cobra Commander. And then I think he fires it and then the movie ends, right? Cuts uh-huh. to credits. 
and um, that's that's cool and it's badass. I'm not sure if they had done a third movie in that continuity. I don't think I want to see Roadblock in the movies actually kill Cobra Commander. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, in Avengers: The Endgame, the story ends for the two main Avengers in a really satisfying way mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. differently for both. And you know, like the actors are getting older and their contracts are up. It's like let's do this. That's great. And like the GI Joe story doesn't need to go on forever. Like in the movies the way that gi joe goes on forever in the comics but you know at the at the end of the first movie when they just have him uh as as a captive it's like i think that's how this it's it's sort of too much to to shoot him because I, I don't i don't want to see him i don't want to see a, a cobra commander weakened or emasculated mm-hmm. you know like it would be it would be enough to see him like i don't know some debris falls on him and he's crawling and roadblock walks up to him and puts his foot on his back and the camera tilts up and the sun's behind roadblock and he's still silhouetted. And I mean, he can point the gun down and say like, you know, you're mine. And he picks him up and cut to black. And he's like, I'm in jail. I'll get you. Uh, so let's, let's, let's plot out the third live action movie. They didn't <laughs> it get. sounds like that's what's happening. <laughs> oh dear. And on that speculation of what the future of the G.I. Joe movies could have been, we will leave our extra bonus waffle content right there. Hope you enjoyed it. We have been Talking Joe, and you can find us on all of the normal places. Talking Joe Comics on Instagram, Talking Joe, a G.I. Joe podcast on Facebook. And you can find Tim over at arealamericanbook.com. Hope you enjoyed that chat, and as always, when all's said and done, you can catch us down the road, because we've been talking Joe, and we're all out of Joes. And also, this time, out of Tim Finns. Laters.